0: Good morning, Hope Community Church, Lower Town, Saint Paul. That's our full title, full name. Just spell it out. Uh, welcome to those online. Really glad you're joining us, and, and uh, thanks to those gathering in person as well. My name is Paul Stiver. I am one of the elders here at Hope Lower Town, and uh, it's my joy to open up God's Word today. Uh, as we last week we celebrated Easter, Resurrection Sunday, and and today now we're getting back into the Book of Hebrews. Jesus is Greater. Our sermon series that we've been going through in the book of Hebrews. Uh, And it has been uh, just a constant look at how Jesus is greater, and we'll see more of that today. And and speaking of greater, um, this is the GOAT. Uh, And we could argue, we could debate. This is Aaron Rodgers now hosting Jeopardy! here. Um, And uh, and, uh, we have to ask, I mean, if you guys have seen it, I I was able to watch an episode this week uh, that my dad DVR'd. Uh, If you guys have seen it, he's pretty good. He's pretty good at hosting Jeopardy. The question is though, is he the greater host than Alex Trebek? Uh, I don't think we could say that. As great as he is as a quarterback and host of a game show, I don't think Aaron Rodgers is is greater. But today we are going to see Jesus is the greater mediator. We're going to kind of do a little bit of comparison between him and Moses and the covenants that they have. Uh, Jesus is the greater mediator. And so uh, we're here now in week 14. We're going to have Hebrews 9, uh, 15 through 28. It's going to be on the screen, and then it's also going to be, um, if you wanted to follow along at home. But before we get there, we've got to recap just where have we been, especially if you're just joining us, where have we been in this book of Hebrews? And we've kind of started actually right in the beginning. The author tells us that Jesus is the greater message, that he's actually the message and the messenger. Um, bringing revelation from God as God's son, and as such, he's greater than angels. Um, That his gospel is greater than Old Testament law. We see then that that he's 100% human, he's become like us, and yet remains 100% God. And and then he's greater than the situations Old Testament prophets wrote about. Uh, Brian taught us how he's greater than Moses. Uh, We saw loving Jesus is greater than what previous generations were offered, this chance to believe in Jesus Uh, We looked at the Sabbath and how Jesus is actually, he is the rest. Uh, And then we looked at kind of how he's greater than these earthly high priests. He's greater than our insecurities and doubts. We saw how Jesus is an anchor for the soul. We saw that Jesus is greater than Melchizedek, one of those weird names in the Bible. and, And Melchizedek being this priest that wasn't in the earthly line, but in a heavenly line. And now Jesus comes and is in that same line as the greater high priest. We saw that Jesus is greater than religion. And we've defined religion as, I do works to earn God's approval. And that Jesus comes and he says, the work is done you. In me you have God's approval, now obey. And so he's greater than religion. And lastly, last week we looked at how the blood of Jesus, his blood as the Messiah, as God's eternal son, is greater than the blood of bulls and goats and sheep that were offered in the Old Testament sacrifices. So we looked at then, and Brian took us through a couple weeks ago, this tabernacle idea, this copy and shadow that when we saw the tabernacle for Israel, it was actually a representation of what's happening in the heavens and that Jesus enters by his blood into God's space and offers himself on our behalf. And so that was kind of what we saw building up to our passage here, which I'll just read through the passage and then we'll come back and unpack some comments. So I'll start in verse 15 here of chapter 9. And it says, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when someone has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, uh, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll on all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness." It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not really his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting on him." And so that's our passage. We're just going to look at some of those implications and try and unpack some of the meaning and some of the terms and and think more deeply about what does this mean now for us. So the first thing we see is the new covenant has taken effect with the death of Christ. It's been ratified with the death of Christ. Right there in verse 15 it says, for this reason we talked about Jesus offering himself, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. And so we see Jesus as this mediator of a new covenant of these people that we saw in our last passage of cleansed consciences who are now have been transferred from dead works to serving the living God, and now are people being prepared for glory. But this new covenant couldn't be enacted until he died. In the same way, the author is arguing, and the Apostle Paul argues this in a different letter in Galatians, that the one, has, one has to die in order for the new covenant promises to be enacted in the same way that an inheritance is not unlocked until the death of the person who made the will. And so Jesus makes that inheritance, Available, But how does that happen? We're actually going to compare with the old covenant now. And see, and that's what the author's doing. They're showing us that the old covenant was set up this way as well, that blood ratifies the covenant. In the way that the blood of Christ has ratified the new covenant, the old covenant was ratified by blood as well. So it says, when Moses had pronounced every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, And sprinkled the scroll on all the people, he said, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. And as we looked at in our last Hebrews passage, then he covers and and the high priest then later will, will atone for and cleanse and purify everything related to the temple service with blood, including the people. But the blood, the giving of the law occurs. Moses gives the law after the Exodus deliverance, and then he sprinkles the people with blood. And says, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. And let's look at that. But first, let's make sense of this biblical storyline real quick. And so we want to make sense of this storyline. We want to see what happened. And so at the beginning of the story, we see uh, this promise to Eve that the seed of the woman is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. And this is after sin has entered the world. And and sin just keeps, keeps running rampant. And so God then makes a promise to Abraham that from Abraham shall this offspring come. He's going to have offspring that number the stars of the sky, but he's going to have an heir. And that ultimately eventually becomes the people of Israel who are then later delivered out of Egypt by Moses. And and after that deliverance, they go into the wilderness where Moses now acts as a mediator, bringing down the covenant of the law from God, or what we see in this passage is called the first covenant or the old covenant covenant. So we got to look at that real quick, this giving of the law and the covenant. And this is from Exodus 24 now, and we're out in the wilderness, Mount Sinai. It says, when Moses went and told all the people, all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he said, um, young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything that the Lord has said we will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words." And so at this moment, they're sprinkled with the blood. They're marked as cleansed and atoned for. They enter into this covenant, this agreement with God. And we see there in verse 7, they've got all the words from God. It's been communicated to them. And they've said, we'll do everything to keep this covenant. And then our author in Hebrews tells us it this way. Moses said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In order to be in the covenant, you must keep this, all these words, and obey all these commands. And so we see Moses is acting actually as a mediator. Moses is revealing the covenant of law. He's actually kind of serving as the prophet of the covenant. And he's got these blood of bulls and goats and sheep ratifying the covenant. But the people must keep the covenant. So this is that old covenant, first covenant, it must be kept in order to be in relationship with God. And so we have to keep going and making sense of the biblical storyline though. And we look at sin and we see that sin is actually the reason the promise to Eve happened or it's a response to that. It's God's graceful response to their sin. And the promises to Abraham after, happen after sin has welled up so much in the world and the spiritual judgment at the Tower of Babel has happened. And Israel is delivered out of Egypt by Moses And they enter into the old covenant under sin. And the problem with the old covenant is they keep on sinning. The people fail to keep the covenant. And we're going to see that. They keep failing to keep the covenant. And actually, God, that's what we have the prophets in the Bible. The prophets come after this in the story. And they're constantly calling people back to the covenant live in this way, walk in these ways. We're not living this way. We're not doing justice. We're not pursuing righteousness. We're sinning in all these ways. Come back to God. Come back to this relationship. But the problem of sin persists. And so what God does through the prophets is he pronounces judgment is coming. He pronounces come back to living in the ways of the covenant. But he also points forward to a future, a hopeful and glorious future. And that problem of sin persists. So in the new covenant is promised. We get this passage in Jeremiah 31 where God talks about what he's going to do about sin. And so we get the prophet here, Jeremiah, pointing forward to a day when this new covenant is going to happen. And that's what we go back to. And we see for this reason now, the author of Hebrews is telling us, now in the story, the new covenant has come. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance And it's happened now that he's died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So we get this language of ransom. This idea of ransom, of of payment, of redemption price, of deliverance, that you were under something and you needed to be bought back from it. And the author of Hebrews is going to tell us that that's that first covenant. And the sin that came under that first covenant holds us captive to God's wrath and to punishment for our sin. And therefore that sin needs a payment. We need a redeemer. We need someone to save us from sin and from being under this first covenant. We need someone to buy us back and pay that ransom. And so in his sacrificial death then, Jesus is the greater mediator of the better new covenant. So we get this, the irony being Brian taught us this a a few weeks back, the new covenant was actually the original covenant, that God was always in his grace going to bring a people back to himself and that later he sets up the law. The apostle Paul tells us it's 430 years later that in Galatians that, that he sets up the law, but the new covenant is the original, even though the author here will call it the first covenant. And so we have this first covenant. Jesus is the greater mediator of the better and newer covenant. And we actually get the chance to go back now in Hebrews, in the same letter we were in, and take a different angle. This letter, as we've talked about week after week, this letter is so packed that you almost can't fit everything from these passages into one sermon, so it's actually kind of nice to be able to call back now to a passage we've looked at already in Hebrews and now look at this Jeremiah 31 new covenant promise. And it says now of Jesus, but in fact the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs, Moses, as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. And here we see the author make the case, for if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness And will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. And so we go back to that idea that Christ has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. And we see that God found fault with the covenant and with the people. And he sought for another covenant, a new covenant. And now Christ is the mediator. He's died as the ransom. He's died to pay the death penalty demanded by that first covenant for sin. And therefore he mediates the new covenant. And now this is kind of funny. I actually haven't defined mediator yet. So let's do that. You can't just throw out terms and never define them. So I'm going to define what is a mediator. And for that, we'll go to actually Donald Hagner as a commentary. And he says this. A mediator is one who serves as a bridge between two individuals or groups and one who therefore must have credibility with both sides, ideally by participation in some sense with both. Two offices of the Old Testament, those of prophets and priests, have a mediatorial character. The prophet represents God to humanity. The priest represents humanity to God. Both must do so, however, only as human beings, albeit with divine commissioning. We have noted that in the opening lines of Hebrews, Christ serves as both prophet and priest. His humanity and deity make him ideally qualified to function as both. The combination of his full deity and full humanity is what enables him to give himself as the all-sufficient sacrifice that constitutes the very basis of the new covenant. It is for this reason, offering his own blood, that he is the mediator of that covenant. With the death of the mediator, we have entered into a new time in salvation history. And so we see a few things about mediators. They're bringing two parties together, ideally by participation in both. Another way to um, think about mediators is they are people who bring God together with humans in holy agreement. But how does that happen? We need someone to be that all-sufficient sacrifice. We need someone to pay the penalty that has caused the rift. And they have to participate in both sides. And that's where the incarnation or the fact that Jesus came as, to earth and took on flesh becomes so important that he's identified fully with humanity and was fully human and is fully human and yet is fully God. And that makes him the perfect mediator. He's capable to offer himself. And so because he has done that, when we think about the story of the Bible, because he has done that, It changes everything. We've entered a new time in salvation history, which is why last time that we preached through Hebrews, we talked about reading the Bible backwards and reading it from Jesus, because when Jesus comes, it's the biggest thing in the story, and it changes everything about the story going backwards and forwards. And so Hagner's telling us, we've entered this new time in salvation history, but how do we get to that place of mediation when the author of Hebrews tells us Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And I think I, we talked about this last time, but this is a challenging concept. Why the blood? Why is blood required as a payment? And I don't have it on the screen, but Leviticus tells us why in a very simple way, that the life is in the blood and blood is demanded to make atonement, that when we have sinned, we are guilty and our blood is demanded to make atonement. So we need Someone, something to stand in our place. And we saw in last week's passage that the blood of bulls and goats did that, but it didn't do it capably. It didn't do it completely. Blood is required for payment, life for life, because the life is in the blood. And the author tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But God tells us in the new covenant promise in verse 12, I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. How is this possible? It's possible because of the cross of Christ. And we, for that, we go to Matthew 26, 26 through 29. And this is the Last Supper. And here Jesus is gonna make it plain for us. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So if blood is demanded, but forgiveness is promised, how can we have that forgiveness? We have it through the cross. That Christ's cross means that forgiveness promised is forgiveness accomplished that he's made it possible by giving his life and his blood to pay the penalty, dying in our place. So when we get to the rest of the storyline, we see after Christ's sacrificial death, forgiveness is possible. His death enacts the new covenant promises. We can be forgiven of our sins. And so we need to ask, what does that forgiveness look like? But first we need to see Jesus as the greater mediator. That he's the one who comes as the message and reveals the new covenant. He serves as the prophet of the new covenant coming directly from the presence of God. He serves as the greater high priest of the new covenant. Not offering the blood of bulls and goats, but his own blood. He dies in our place to mediate the new covenant, paying the death penalty that God demands for our sin, for our failure to obey and he ratifies with his blood and enacts the new covenant, which means, as the authors told us, the old way of relating to God is obsolete. That Christ's death enacts the decisive forgiveness and atonement that defines the new covenant. The first covenant says, keep. <laughs> keep. The first covenant says, keep. The new covenant, Christ says, kept it's done. On Good Friday when he dies, he says, it is finished. I've obeyed fully and now I'm dying in your place. His death enacts the decisive forgiveness and atonement that defines the new covenant. Atonement just meaning being at one, restored to God, making peace on our behalf. And so we continue on in our passage. It says, It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself, just as people are destined to die once and after that face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So if, God, if Christ has entered God's presence on our behalf and he is our high priest representative, with, when he goes in, he's representing us as if we are there with him. In order to be purified, we need better sacrifices. We need the blood of Christ. And it says then uh, he's appeared then. He has come. This is what we mean when we say a new dawn has come, a new age has come, the culmination of the ages. He's come to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. And the author just throws in this. People are destined to die once and after that face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And now when Christ comes, there's actually, if possible, an elevated standard that we're no longer under the standard of the law. That now when we stand before the judgment throne, God is going to look at us and see if we are in Christ. He's going to judge by the standard of his perfectly righteous son, which means we're toast. We can't live up to that standard unless we have Perfect righteousness. And for that, let's go back to the Old Testament and think about now the Day of Atonement. And so this is a picture of just some sheep. There's, there's sheep and goats here. But on this Day of Atonement, the high priest was going to dr- go into the tabernacle to represent the people in God's presence on their behalf. And a few things had to occur to make the, him holy enough to go in. First, a bull had to be killed for his sins and the sins of his family. And the blood had to be sprinkled in the holy places for him to be able to enter. Then a sheep had to be sacrificed, the perfect unblemished sheep for the sins of the people. And then they would even go a little further and they'd take a goat. So we had the blood sacrifice, the bull sacrifice for the priest. We had the sheep sacrifice for the people. But even further than that, they would take a goat. This is where we get the term scapegoat and they would put their hands on it and confess on its head all the sins of the people of Israel. As if the sins were going on to that goat and then they would send that goat into the wilderness to die and never come back. That's why they're called the scapegoat. They were cast out. They were sent away. And in that, we get these ideas, these big theological words of propitiation and expiation. Propitiation meaning that God had vengeance. He had wrath on our sin because he's just, because he's holy, and we violated his ways. But propitiation means that there's been a sacrifice that has turned him from his anger and hostility toward our sin to blessing and favor toward us that he's been appeased and made favorable toward us. And then expiation means guilt removed. They sent the scapegoat out to symbolize you're gone. Your sin is gone. It's expunged to be forgotten, to be remembered no more. But as we've seen that day of atonement wasn't good enough with the blood of bulls and goats, we need the full and eternal blood of Christ to be shed. We need the greater sacrifice, and this is the good news here of our passage. The mediator is the ransom. That the one who's going to mediate between the two parties is also the one who's going to make the payment. That in offering himself in our place, he mediates the new covenant propitiation. God turns from wrath to favor because his justice is satisfied once for all by the blood of Christ shed on the cross, his own son. That God is now favorable to those united with Christ. And secondly, now in offering himself in our place, Jesus mediates the new covenant expiation as he removes our guilt from us. He takes it away. That I'm no longer defined by my sin, I'm defined by my Savior. And God is favorable toward me. So the finality of Christ's atoning sacrifice, the finality of what he's done, that he's appeared at the end of the age, once for all, offering his own blood, as our representative changes everything about how we relate to God as new covenant people. That no longer are we in a covenant of, of obey. We're in a covenant of obeyed already by Christ. So now we can be in the family of God through faith, that God is our father. We can be united to him and united to Christ through faith, united to his son, that we can be accepted in Christ because he has kept the covenant. And because we are in him, that we now have been bought back. We've been redeemed. We've been restored. We've been cleansed and we've been atoned for. We've been purified. And we have to see the finality of this. He's done it one time. He doesn't need to die again. He got off the cross. And so now how do we respond to that? Now we're not waiting for him to appear again to deal with sin. He's already dealt with it in his death. We're waiting now for him to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So how do we do that? How do we wait on God? If the old covenant, the first covenant said, obey, 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 keep the commands. If you don't, you're out. How do we wait on God now? We do it by faith. We do it by faith. We live by faith. That's what waiting on God is. Faith is hoping in something to come. And for those who have put their faith in Christ, we're not waiting on judgment anymore. See, that's the problem with the first covenant is you're trying to live up to that standard. All you're doing is tiptoeing and walking on eggshells and waiting on judgment. But in the new covenant, judgment has been meted out on Christ. We're waiting for him to bring salvation, but we have to be waiting on him. Is your faith in Christ? Has your sin been dealt with on his cross? Because the reality is new covenant people live under God's smile of approval in Christ. It can be so easy to forget this. That I am accepted in the beloved. God delights in me because he delights in his son. And I am in his son through faith. My sin is forgiven. My guilt is removed. When God looks at me, he sees Christ. He's credited me with his righteousness. That God is not a cosmic hammer just waiting for us to mess up so he can drop a hammer on us. Nor is he a spoil sport. His ways are life. But it can be so easy to feel this way. I gotta read from... Uh, this is actually, Allison realized this as we were working. Allison's taking our systematic theology class, my wife, and um, she was processing through some ways that she thought about God as we were looking at the finality of Christ's atonement. And she said this Our theology book is talking about how, and then we looked at this passage in Hebrews 6 a while ago, how we can experience temporary blessings of being associated with the faith, of faith in Christ, and still not be really saved. She says of her time, I acknowledged and believed the gospel intellectual and was guilty, maybe even convicted of my sin. But I don't know if it reached my heart, attitudes, and motives in my young life. I read verses about professing your faith out of fear of not wanting Jesus to reject me before God. Not because I knew deep in my soul that this was the truth with every fiber of my being. So I would confess and profess Jesus out of fear of hell. And that's also why I shared the gospel. Not because it had changed me, but because it was an obligation and I was afraid of being rejected by God. The Bible said it, but I had the perspective that I was morally neutral. That Jesus had taken my sin, but I had to be moral from here on out. And that ultimately I'd be saved, but God was doing it begrudgingly. I honestly believed that I had disappointed him, that I had to do stuff to keep his favor or appease him. So confessing Jesus was how to make him not disappointed in me. It was a huge realization for me a few years ago when I realized I had been thinking in the past that God had given me a do-over in Jesus and a blank slate. I don't think that's just me. I think that's a lot of people. Jesus washed my sins away, period, the end. We live under God's smile of approval if we're in Christ. We don't live under the cosmic hammer. We don't need to constantly try and do things to feel like we're earning his favor. We have it because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. We're not morally neutral. If if your faith is in Christ, you are righteous in Christ. That God has nothing more on you except love and blessing and discipline, which we'll see later in Hebrews chapter 12. He's not a cosmic hammer, He's not a spoil sport, His ways are life. We're under the smile because Jesus has done it. Because Jesus was willing to go under the cosmic hammer in our place and die in our place on the cross. We can be set free from sin. He's our ransom. He's our redeemer. He pays the price. The mediator is the ransom. And now we are accepted in the beloved. If your faith is in Jesus, you are righteous. But we're waiting for him to bring salvation. We're living by faith. So what does it mean to wait well under the smile of God? And I just want to look at at three angles. And just think about the implications. If, I, if I'm fully forgiven, fully forgiven, I'm accepted. I'm in the family of God. There's nothing I can do to lose that, that God loves me because I'm united to his son by faith. That evangelism isn't like Allison said in the past, professing your faith out of fear. I don't want Jesus to reject me, so I better just tell people about him. No, evangelism is, I can't help but tell you about the Savior who redeemed me from sin who's blessed me with life and the knowledge of him with peace and joy and comfort. That now I don't walk on eggshells, hope hope I don't mess up, but God will bring the hammer down on me in obedience. But I actually want to obey because I've been ransomed from a life of sin. God awakens me to realize how futile and painful and miserable that is. But now I don't obey out of obligation to try and keep God's favor. I obey because I have it. He loves me. Man, when you are safe in a loving relationship like this one, you want to serve. You want to obey. You want to see the healing that he brings and only he can bring. There's no fear. Perfect love casts out fear. I don't need to wonder if God loves me because of the cross of Christ. I'm under the smile. He's a good father. And lastly, just with suffering. I think when we go through suffering, when we go through hard things, we can kind of take two lanes. We can turn inward and say, man, I'm so bad. I'm getting what I deserve. God's just giving me what I deserve because I've been messing up so much. Or we can go, God's bad. He's giving me what I don't deserve. And we can read our suffering and circumstances back onto God. But if Christ's atoning sacrifice is true and final and we live under the smile of God, we actually can face suffering. Knowing that God hates our suffering, but he uses it. God uses pain, he doesn't waste it. He disciplines us for our good as a loving father and he's there with us in the midst of it through it all. But it can't mean that it's because he hates us that we're going through something hard. It can't mean because he's not good. We are in Christ and under the smile of God. So as we close in gospel application, I just want to ask this. Because we need to be confronted with this. This week, I felt there's one thing, it's one thing to feel conviction. Conviction's from the Holy Spirit when we're not living in line with God's ways and we feel that conviction and we know we need to repent. But it's another to live feeling like you're under the cosmic hammer, feeling under guilt, feeling like you've got to make another payment to God as if you could pay something better than Christ's sacrifice. Do you believe that full forgiveness is available through faith in Jesus Christ? That your sin can be dealt with on his cross? That God's wrath, his hostility toward your sin because he's holy and just and only good can be appeased And he can be made favorable and that you now don't have to be defined by your sin, that it is removed as far as the east is from the west or as far as the scapegoat is outside the camp. Never to be remembered, never to be held against you again. That God can forgive you fully. You can only have access to this if you put your faith in Christ. Do you believe that? Today could be the day watching online in here that you say, "I, I never heard that I could be completely forgiven once for all time by just trusting in Jesus. And today could be the day you put your faith in him. Because God wants us to know. God really wants us to know this. God wants us to know we're okay in Jesus. Because that's where we actually start to live. That's where we actually start to obey and produce the fruit of righteousness when we know how righteous we are in Christ. So then this week, live under the smile of God. Live under the smile of God that you are accepted. You're okay in Jesus. God is not a cosmic hammer waiting for you to slip up. He's pleased with you. He's delighted with you because he's forming his son in you. And nothing pleases him more. We've got nothing to prove to God. He loves us. He's our father and he's a good father. If you're in Christ by faith, you are under the smile of God and that doesn't change. So we're going to move to a time of communion and... I just want to call back to mind that new covenant that made that forgiveness possible. That Christ fulfills his death, accomplishes the forgiveness that was promised. Now we can live under the smile of God because he has enacted the new covenant in his blood, which is why he said, take of it all of you drink. That when we take these elements, there's nothing special about them, they're representative, they symbolize the body of Christ being broken for us, and the blood of Christ being shed for us. And when we take of those elements, communion cups are in the back, or if you're taking it at home, we can remember that now He's enacted the new covenant, decisive forgiveness and atonement in His blood, and that we live under the smile of God. We're going to uh, take communion, sing a couple songs, and, uh, and I'll pray before that, but uh, we don't ask uh, we're, we don't ask that you be a member of this church or any church. We just ask that if you're going to take communion with us that you would be a follower of Christ, that you'd be someone that said, I know I need forgiveness. I know I need to put my faith in Jesus and I've done that. So take communion with us if you've done that today. Uh, I'm going to pray for us and, and uh, we can uh, continue on with the service. Father, you... Uh, you're good and we can trust you. We're waiting on you now. We're waiting on Jesus to appear a second time and bring salvation. God, and that waiting can be hard. And we yearn for the day that he comes and brings that salvation in full to us. But we can look to you enacting the new covenant and him enacting the new covenant in his blood and say, if you fulfilled that promise, we can trust you to fulfill this promise. That you one day are going to make all things new, starting with making us new. And so, God, we pray that. We pray that we would realize that when we put our faith in you, we are under the smile that our full atonement has been paid and that you are a loving and good father who wants to see us grow, wants to see us healed, and most importantly, wants to see us resemble your son in our own lives and in the world. So help us to do that. Be honored and glorified now. As we take communion, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.